0: Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, March 28, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner
1: with a look at today's top stories. Netanyahu delays Israel's judicial overhaul
0: following mass protests and strikes. NATO condemns Putin's decision to station tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus. Honduras officially cuts diplomatic ties with Taiwan. Trump holds his first 2024 campaign rally in Waco, Texas. First Citizens agrees to buy much of Silicon Valley Bank. U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris arrives in Africa to boost ties. Hong Kong holds its first authorized protest
1: since 2020 under police surveillance.
0: Burkina Faso suspends France 24 broadcasts.
1: The Lebanese government reverses its decision to
0: delay daylight savings. And a new study concludes the world population bomb may never go off as feared. In our top
1: story, news coming from Israel as Netanyahu delays a judicial overhaul. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, Times of Israel, Al Jazeera, New York Times, CNN, and Yahoo News. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Monday announced that the votes of the two remaining readings of his government's divisive judicial overhaul plan would be delayed until next legislative session, citing the need to reach an agreement to prevent dividing the country. On Saturday night, Netanyahu decided to sack Israel Defense Minister Yoav Gallant after he urged the government to halt its plans to change the country's judiciary, arguing that the internal rift over the legislation had become a threat to national security. Israel had been rocked by mass protests since the government announced its proposed judicial reforms in January, with demonstrators clashing with police weekly. Unrest has recently sparked even within the Israeli army allegedly weakening the country's military readiness and national cohesion. Following Gallant, the first cabinet minister to disagree with the government and call for more dialogue over the next month, some moderate members of the ruling Likud party have also supported a freeze to the legislation. However, it was unclear whether they would vote against the bill in the Knesset. Over the weekend, hundreds of thousands of Israelis took to the streets across the country to protest against the reforms, while several Israeli reservists are refusing to serve and train in opposition to the plans. Protests continued into Monday, with the country's largest trade union calling a general strike. A Monday Knesset session also turned into a dramatic scene, as opposition members of parliament verbally attacked Simcha Rothman, the committee chairman who has shepherded the bill, with cries of shame, shame, and accusations that the bill will be catastrophic for Israel.
0: Well, there you have it. Those are the facts. Let's start our narrative spins with the left narrative from New Statesman. This move by Netanyahu and his most extreme allies shows despite a legitimate rightward shift in the electorate, the prime minister has less control over his coalition than once thought. Facing scrutiny over bribery and fraud charges, the only way Netanyahu can maintain his power is by ripping apart Israel's long-standing democratic institutions and criminalizing judicial dissent. We are watching an authoritarian coup unfold in real time.
1: Jerusalem Post gives us
0: a right narrative.
1: Despite the left arguing that these judicial reform plans threaten democracy, the reality is quite the opposite. The self-appointed Israeli Supreme Court has autocratic, unchecked powers that allow it to nullify and rewrite democratically enacted laws and policies based on subjective justifications. Consequently, the move is crucial to curb the court's undemocratic excesses and protect the rule of
0: law. We also have a pro-Palestine narrative. This comes from Middle East Eye. Though there's much talk from the Israeli left that the country's democracy is under threat, for Palestinians it has never been a democracy. Apartheid and democracy are mutually exclusive, and the only reason Israelis are protesting in the first place is their desire to maintain the system that has oppressed Palestinians for 75 years.
1: And lastly, we have a nerd narrative coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. It says there's a 58% chance that Israel will have a national election for Knesset in 2023.
0: That yelling shame, shame at someone, that was a thing in a, a prominent scene in Game of Thrones, you know, what five years ago or so. Was that a thing before or is that a, are they referencing the show? I'm not familiar <laughs> with public <laughs> shaming, I guess.
1: It makes you wonder if I'm going to start using it.
0: I think it's cool. <laughs> You can say it to me whenever I mess, you know, mess something up, a pronunciation or something. Shame, shame, Scott. Shame, shame. Oh, <laughs> oh it works. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. Next up, NATO condemns Putin's decision to station tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Sky News, the Associated Press, TASS, the Donetsk News Agency, and Ukrainska Pravda. NATO has slammed the weekend announcement from Vladimir Putin that the Russian president plans to station tactical nuclear weapons in neighboring Belarus. Russia's nuclear rhetoric is dangerous and irresponsible, NATO spokeswoman Oana Lungescu said. NATO is vigilant and we are closely monitoring the situation. We have not seen any changes in Russia's nuclear posture that would lead us to adjust our own. The comments were echoed by U.S. administration officials who told Reuters, We have not seen any reason to adjust our own strategic nuclear posture, nor any indications Russia is preparing to use a nuclear weapon. We remain committed to the collective defense of the NATO alliance. In announcing the move, Putin said he was following the lead of the U.S., noting its nuclear weapons stationed in Belgium, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, and Turkey. Putin said, We are doing what they have been doing for decades, stationing them in certain allied countries, preparing the launch platforms, and training their crews. We are going to do the same thing. Meanwhile, Ukraine's government has demanded that the UN Security Council hold an emergency meeting on the topic, stating the body must counter the Kremlin's nuclear blackmail. Ukraine's foreign ministry said the permanent members of the UN Security Council have a special responsibility regarding nuclear aggression. Adding that the world must be united against someone who endangers the future of human civilization. Elsewhere in the conflict, Ukraine again launched a drone deep into the territory of Russia on Sunday, striking the city of Kirovsk in the Tula region, roughly 140 miles or 225 kilometers south of Moscow. Russian officials said three civilians were injured in the attack. Meanwhile, a car bomb targeted the police chief of Russian-occupied Mariupol, Mikhail Moshkvin, on Monday. Moskvin was reported near the vehicle when it exploded and suffered a concussion, but was said to have survived the attack. Elsewhere in Donetsk, pro-Russia officials said one civilian was killed in a Ukrainian rocket attack on Monday. In Russian attacks on Donetsk, Ukrainian officials said one civilian was killed and two more were injured in attacks on Sunday, while a further two civilians were killed and 29 more were injured on Monday. Four civilians were also reported injured in Kherson in attacks over the past day. Russian attacks were also recorded in the regions of Sumy and Kharkiv, with no additional reports of casualties. Scott, thank you for laying out the facts
1: of that story. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from DW. The West must not give in to Putin's nuclear rhetoric. By ratcheting up fear, Putin is hoping we back off and let him have his way in Ukraine. However, doing that would only further embolden the Russian president. We must be firm and resolute in the face of this nuclear blackmail.
0: And the pro-Russia narrative comes from TASS. Russia is simply following the lead of the U.S., which for years has stationed nuclear weapons in the territories of its allies. Why should Russia not be inclined to do the same? And the Metaculous
1: Prediction community once again giving us a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 1.8% chance that Russia will detonate a nuclear weapon in Ukraine before 2024.
0: I uh, have been watching that HBO series on Chernobyl. We're kind of desensitized to, oh, there's going to be a nuclear this, oh, it's a nuclear that. Like we say those words all the time in society. We, we kind of lost all meaning. In the wrong hands, this is some pretty scary stuff. I mean, there's no good version of this thing. I mean, this no. is, if anything happens, like I said, even accidentally or by neglect or by, by misunderstanding. It is a absolute catastrophe, and I I really want to underline that to the listeners. I mean, I just watched a TV show about it, so it's fresh on my mind, but this is very, very serious. It's hard to think about. That's for sure. It's terrifying. Honduras cuts
1: diplomatic ties with Taiwan and opens relations with China. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, CNN, New York Times, New York Post, Daily Mail, and Washington Post. Honduras on Sunday established diplomatic relations with the PRC, formally switching its official recognition to Beijing a day after severing ties with Taiwan, thereby completing a pledge made by President Xiomara Castro earlier this month. Democratic Socialist Castro, who was elected by a huge margin in 2021, had previously outlined plans to push for improved relations with Beijing in her pre-electoral foreign policy manifesto. This announcement comes days before Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen is set to visit its now two remaining Central American allies, Belize and Guatemala, with the aim of strengthening ties. With the news of Honduras, only 12 nations and the Holy See still recognize the island as self-ruled. Honduras is the ninth diplomatic ally that Taiwan has lost to Beijing since pro-independence President Tsai took office in May 2016 as the PRC ramps up its efforts to win recognition for its One China policy. The PRC and Taiwan have been struggling for diplomatic recognition since they split amid civil war in 1949, with Beijing claiming the island as part of its territory and rejecting most contacts with countries that maintain formal ties with Taiwan. In response to this shift, the U.S. State Department stressed it would continue to deepen its engagement with Taiwan.
0: Thanks for laying it out for us, Eric. We have an anti-China narrative from Focus Taiwan. Honduras has taken this decision because Beijing has expanded its dollar diplomacy so as to isolate Taiwan and suppress its international participation. However, the PRC will neither be able to intimidate the democratic island nor disrupt regional peace and stability. Taiwanese people can count on their diplomatic allies and like-minded global partners to defend Taiwan's sovereignty on the international stage.
1: Global Times gives us a pro-China narrative. Given the PRC's relevance in today's world, Honduras will not be the last alleged diplomatic ally of Taiwan to cut ties with the island and seek better relations with Beijing. This decision has nothing to do with dollar diplomacy, a practice in which China has never engaged, but everything to do with the sovereign state following its own interests instead of those of the U.S. and Taiwan secessionists.
0: And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 50% chance that at least 13 UN member states will formally recognize Taiwan at the end of 2025. You know, dollar diplomacy's kind of uh, BS now. Everything there's a dollar fifty now. Ah, uh, you're right. Darn inflation. Trump holds his first 2024 campaign rally in Waco. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Reuters, USA Today, The Guardian, and Al Jazeera. Former President Donald Trump on Saturday took the stage in Waco, Texas for the first rally of his 2024 presidential campaign. During his speech, he railed against a host of investigations into him that are taking place across the country. Trump told his supporters they will be vindicated and proud when the thugs and criminals who are corrupting our justice system will be defeated, discredited, and totally disgraced. Currently, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office is investigating Trump for a bookkeeping error related to his alleged payment of hush funds to an adult film actress prior to the 2016 election, while a federal special counsel is looking into his handling of documents as well as the aftermath of the 2020 election, and Georgia prosecutors are also looking at his actions after the 2020 election. Earlier last week, Trump claimed on social media that the Manhattan District Attorney was preparing to arrest him, but no arrest has occurred. The former president also urged his supporters to protest in his favor. Trump also devoted part of his speech to criticism of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, often seen as Trump's stiffest competition for the Republican presidential nomination. Trump described DeSantis as disloyal and claimed that Florida was doing well before DeSantis became governor. The airport grounds in Waco where Trump held the rally sit not far from the site where the FBI raided the Branch Davidians religious sect compound 30 years ago. The raid, which resulted in 86 deaths, is a source of resentment against the government from any far-right groups. Trump's campaign denied a connection between the rally and the anniversary. Scott,
1: thank you for the facts of that story. The pro-Trump narrative is coming from Daily Caller. Trump made the case for his innocence forcefully in the race of Biden and Democrats weaponizing the Justice Department to hurt the former president's chances at returning to the White House. The deep state has been colluding against Trump for years. And the next election will be a chance to finally
0: defeat it and preserve the U.S. And the Democratic narrative comes from MSNBC. Trump's rhetoric has dangerously riled up hatred of the U.S. government and those investigating him, even leading to a death threat against Manhattan D.A. Alvin Bragg. Trump made things worse by choosing Waco, which was a clear message that he aligns with the militia movement and its dangerous anti-government conspiracy theories. Trump's recklessness could lead to even more violence.
1: In our next story, First Citizens plans to buy much of Silicon Valley Bank. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, ABC News, Bloomberg, and CNBC. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, on Sunday announced that First Citizens Bank and Trust, or First Citizens, has agreed to purchase the deposits and loans of the failed Silicon Valley Bank, or SVB. First Citizens will buy SVP's Silicon Valley Bridge Bank for about $72 billion, including its National Association's assets, for a discounted price of $16.5 billion. SVP's 17 branches are set to reopen on Monday as new branches of First Citizens. After failing in its first attempt to auction off bits of SVB, the FDIC moved to allow bidders to submit separate offers for the bank and its subsidiary. Even with First Citizens' Purchase, approximately $90 billion in securities and other assets await disposition. As part of the purchase agreement, the FDIC agreed to a loss-share transaction and will absorb a portion of the losses on the acquisition. The clause is projected to maximize recoveries by keeping them in the private sector and minimize disruptions for loan customers. Many have been stunned by First Citizens' Acquisition though the bank has a history of bailing out troubled competitors. Since 2009, the country's 30th largest bank has acquired at least 20 FDIC-assisted institutions. In light of the transaction, in which the FDIC received equity appreciation rights in First Citizens bank shares, First Citizens stock soared 45% during Monday morning
0: trading. All right, Narrative A on this story comes from Vox. While this acquisition may not seem like one in the traditional sense, it's still a bailout. These banking institutions got in over their heads and collapsed. The customers of those banks are still getting their money from somewhere, which is partly at the expense of taxpayers and partly the finance industry. So while we call it protecting the consumer, it's ultimately a bailout just disguised by another name.
1: Narrative B comes from Vanity Fair. There are certainly questions to be answered surrounding how this collapse occurred in the first place. But that doesn't mean the government response is unethical. This is not a bailout, as the FDIC ensured a private entity would pay for it. No federal money is being used other than the highly praised $250,000 FDIC insurance policy. So talk about taxpayers bailing out big banks should be nipped in the bud as Barney Fife would say.
0: <laughs> That's where nip in the bud came from, do you think? That's a, it's a Barney <laughs> no. Fifeism, or do you
1: think that was around before? That was around before, but he certainly uh, made it a big deal.
0: U.S. Vice President Harris begins her Africa trip. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Daily Mail, DW, TRT World, Ghana Business News, News Ghana, and Al Jazeera. U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris on Sunday arrived in Ghana for the first leg of her week-long trip to Africa, which is intended to deepen ties between the U.S. and African nations amid China and Russia's growing influence. Harris, speaking in Accra, Ghana's capital, referred to the long-lasting and very important U.S.-Africa relationship. She also said she plans to promote economic growth and food security on the continent. During her visit, Harris will discuss strengthening democracy and regional security issues and work to deepen business ties with Ghana's president, Nana Otto Darkwa Akfu Otto. She will reportedly announce public and private sector investments across the continent, many of which will be aimed at economic empowerment for women and girls. As part of her March 26-29 Ghana visit, Harris will also hold talks on China's involvement in African technology and economic sectors that affect Washington's interest, as well as Beijing's role in restructuring African sovereign debt. Harris's trip will also stop in Tanzania and Zambia. Previously, before a December U.S.-Africa summit, the U.S. pledged $55 billion to the continent over the next three years, and U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced $150 million in humanitarian aid to Africa's Sahel region this month on a visit to Niger. Thank you, Scott, for the facts of that story. Global Times brings us the establishment
1: critical narrative. Harris can try her best to woo Africa to the side with the U.S., but times have changed. African nations now know they have a choice between the infamous friendship with the West's imperialist and neocolonial powers and mutually beneficial political and economic cooperation with China in a more fair, multipolar
0: world order. And Politico brings us the pro-establishment narrative. Africans know of the increasing threat of exploitation by China and Russia. On the other hand, the U.S. and Africa should be able to put their rocky past behind them and forge a transparent and inclusive relationship that will protect Africa from China while giving the U.S. and Western institutions an advantage on the global stage. News coming from
1: Hong Kong as police monitor the first authorized protest since 2020. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CBS, DW. Al Jazeera, and UN News. On Sunday, a group of 100 people staged Hong Kong's first authorized protest since Beijing enacted a sweeping national security law in 2020. Under a heavy police presence, protesters marched against a proposed land reclamation and garbage processing project in the eastern district of Kwan O Participants carried security-approved banners wearing numbered badges around their necks. They were reportedly warned against wearing black clothes and masks, as well as chanting seditious slogans. In its response to the protest, the city's Development Bureau said the project meets the needs of the community, but it would respect the right to freedom of expression and consider reducing the scope of land reclamation activities. Hong Kong's mini-constitution guarantees the right to public assembly. However, after China imposed a national security law to curb the months-long pro-democracy protests in 2019, and bring stability to the city, Hong Kong's freedom of assembly was curtailed. Under the law, more than 200 individuals, including children and civil rights activists, have been arrested in the first two years of its implementation. Many others have fled the city to avoid prosecution.
0: All right, we have some diametrically opposed political narratives on this one. Let's start with the anti-China narrative from Hong Kong Free Press. Hong Kong's national security law was designed to squash dissent, weaken the region's autonomy with the PRC, and erode the residents' right to freedom and expression. Hong Kong is a signatory to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and is under obligation to keep human rights prioritized. The draconian law was passed without consultation from Hong Kong's public and must be immediately repealed. The pro-China
1: narrative is coming from Ox Youth Forum. The national security law is consistent with Hong Kong's mini-constitution. It guarantees and protects Hong Kong residents' freedom of speech and peaceful assembly. The 2019 protests caused severe threats to law and order, as well as lives and properties, and plunged Asia's world city into a cauldron of tyranny. Due to Beijing's actions, and Beijing is ultimately responsible for Hong Kong's security, peace, public safety, and business confidence
0: have returned to Hong Kong. And we've got another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 50% chance that Hong Kong will stop being a special administrative region of China by January of 2044. Sometimes I I wish we had a mini constitution. I was thinking it it did stick a mini constitution. I mean, I think it's an average size constitution if you ask me. That's (laughs) what I've always been told. Right. Yeah. Burkina Faso suspends France 24 broadcasts. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, Africa News, FT, DW, and the Associated Press. Burkina Faso's government on Monday suspended state-funded France 24 broadcasts in the country after the TV channel aired an interview with Yazid Mubarak, the head of al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, AQIM, earlier this month. This comes as relations between Paris and Ouagadougou have collapsed since the military took over Burkina Faso last October, with the Junta rescinding a military deal and giving France one month to withdraw its troops in January this year. France 24, which has also been suspended in Mali for a year, relayed on March 6th written answers from the leader of the AQIM to some 15 questions put by its journalist Wassam Nasser. In the interview, Mubarak stated that the withdrawal of French troops from both Burkina Faso and Mali was a victory for his group. He also described the Russian private-military Wagner Group as a colonial force in the region. Radio France Internationale has also been suspended in Burkina Faso since December on allegations that the media outlet had disseminated a message of intimidation attributed to a terrorist chief. Jihadist insurgency linked to al-Qaeda and the so-called Islamic State group have unsettled the once peaceful West African country of Burkina Faso for seven years, killing thousands and displacing around two million people.
1: All right, those were the facts. Our first spin is Narrative A, coming from RT. As if France failing to help its former colonies fight jihadist insurgency wasn't enough, now its state-owned France 24 media outlet is unacceptably acting as the mouthpiece for dangerous terrorists threatening Burkina Faso and its people by giving a platform to jihadist groups. Burkina Faso's government had no choice but to suspend France 24 in order to maintain stability in the country.
0: And straight from the horse's mouth, we have Narrative B from France 24. Burkina Faso's government is making outrageous and defamatory remarks regarding France 24 and mischaracterizing the network's broadcast of its interview with Abu Obida Youssef al the country has a history of suppressing journalists and curbing press freedom, and it should not suspend channels without notice.
1: In our next story, news from Lebanon as the government reverses its decision of delaying daylight savings. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The National, Al Jazeera, Associated Press, and Reuters. Lebanese caretaker Prime Minister Najib Mikati on Monday reversed his decision to delay daylight savings time in Lebanon until the end of the holy month of Ramadan announcing that clocks would go forward by one hour overnight on Wednesday after confusion engulfed the country. Usually, Lebanon enters daylight savings on the last Sunday in March, which aligns with most European countries. However, the government had decided to delay this so that Muslims could break their Ramadan fast an hour earlier, sparking a controversy that quickly drew sectarian undertones. Some institutions implemented the last-minute change while others refused resulting in the country having two different time zones. Many Christian politicians and the Maronite Church are among those who rejected to comply with the decision. Lebanon's education minister, Abbas Halabi, had said on Sunday, schools would operate on daylight savings time, which would have gone against the government's decision, leading to more confusion. Many outlets reported that Makati's month-long postponement was influenced by a meeting he had with Parliament Speaker Nabi Berry prompting the Lebanese Christian leadership to accuse the two Muslim leaders of exploiting the presidential vacuum. The session came as Lebanon's economic crisis continues to deepen, with the country's currency hitting a new low on the parallel market earlier this month, reaching 100,000 Lebanese pounds to the dollar. Lebanon is also currently without a government or president, which is reserved
0: for a Maronite Christian due to political infighting. Al-Shark Alsaad brings us Narrative A. Yet again, Lebanon's right-wing politicians and media organizations are agitating against the government as it tries to accommodate Muslims fasting for Ramadan. Makati has gone out of his way to avoid sectarian rhetoric, and the decision was not sectarian in any way. However, the right has decided to use this issue to stoke sectarian tensions between Muslims and Christians.
1: Narrative B is coming from IBC Group. The government tried to isolate Lebanon from the rest of the world by interfering with daylight savings. But, Thankfully, agitation against the decision has succeeded. While it is technically possible for a country to delay daylight savings, this decision requires approval from an international body. Lebanon will need a stronger president to counteract Barry and Makati's
0: meddling. And Narrative C comes from the national news. As Lebanon's economic crisis continues to deteriorate into its fourth year, the government stokes sectarian divisions to distract the public from its total incompetence and corruption. Barry and Makati knew that this decision would cause serious problems, both logistically and socially. Yet, as the Lira's value plunges, the Lebanese people are bickering amongst themselves over what time it is. Lebanon's political class truly has no shame in what it will do to distract people from its greed.
1: This story also features a nerd narrative coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. It says there's a 50% chance that there will cease to be Maronite president of Lebanon, a Sunni prime minister of Lebanon. Or a Shia Speaker of
0: Parliament of Lebanon by March 2031. And our final story the world's population bomb may never explode. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Sky News, Earth for All, UN News, Science Blog, Guardian, and the World Economic Forum. A study commissioned by the Club of Rome, published Monday, reported the world population could peak at 8.6 billion in 2050. Before declining rapidly to 7 billion in the year 2100, based on current economic trends. The study estimates the population could even peak at 8.5 billion in 2040, before declining to around 6 billion by 2100 if extreme poverty is eliminated and economic development is accelerated through an unprecedented investment in poverty amelioration. This contrasts with the 2022 UN forecasts, which projected the global population to reach 9.7 9.7 billion in 2050, peaking at 10.4 billion during the 2080s. In addition, researchers said luxury carbon and biosphere consumption among the world's richest 10% and not population size destabilizes the planet and is the prime driver behind climate change. Despite the implication that a feared global population bomb may not go off, researchers warned that a declining population alone will not solve the planet's environmental problems or Prevent it from ecological or total climate collapse unless the current development paradigm of overconsumption and overproduction is addressed. The latest forecasts come after the world's population passed the 8 billion mark in November of 2022. More than half of the global population lives in seven countries China, India, the US, Indonesia, Pakistan, Nigeria, and Brazil.
1: Thank you, Scott, for those facts. We have a couple of spins beginning with narrative A coming from New York Times. Slowing population growth does not pose an existential threat to the planet. In fact, it brings many economic and environmental benefits to a world struggling with the threat of climate change. A rapidly growing population just creates more pressure on the natural environment and man-made infrastructure alike.
0: Narrative B comes from the Washington Post. Overpopulation is an overstated problem. We can't solve our climate change or environmental issues by having fewer babies with fewer people around who will come up with the next world-bending ideas. Despite popular rhetoric, overpopulation isn't the threat. Stagnating birth rates, which don't just represent a crisis for a specific country, but are an existential threat to the entire planet, are.
1: Narrative C is coming from ungeneva.org. More than half of the global population increase between now and 2100 will occur in low- or lower-middle-income countries. We can't expect those countries to make the necessary investments to provide for their growing populations. It's up to the rest of the world to bridge wealth and equality between the global haves and have-nots to make sure marginalized countries can provide their populations with a good quality of life. While there might not be a global population bomb, there will certainly be a global population imbalance.
0: And the nerd narrative comes from Metaculus. This says there's a 50% chance that it would take at least... 855 years to recover the population above 1 billion again if the human population declines to fewer than 100 million, according to the Metaculus Prediction community. <music>
1: Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, March 28th, 2023.
0: Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website,
1: improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric inviting you to join us next time on improve the news